This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus chat, AMD in the winter, tips to stay safe and healthy. If this is your first time in a Bright Focus chat, welcome and thanks for joining us. Just uh, for, for background, Bright Focus uh, funds some of the top researchers in the world. These are scientists who are trying to find better treatments and ultimately cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. We try to take the, the latest news from the fields of health and science and share them with families that are impacted by these diseases. This is why we do the Bright Focus Chats. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from a geriatric psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University, uh, Dr. Dr. Deidre Johnston. She'll be talking about uh, uh, you know, some tips on, uh, to help, help people with low vision um, stay safe and healthy throughout the winter months. As we turn to today's Bright Focus chat, Dr. Johnston's name might be familiar. She joined us about a year and a half, two years ago, and we had a great discussion about the emotional impact of, of vision loss. And we thought this was a very good time to invite Dr. Johnston back because for many parts of the country, um, it's cold. It's really cold. Uh, it gets dark early, and uh, the, road, the roads and the steps can get icy. So these lead to a lot of challenges for all parts of the population, particularly um, those who are impacted by low vision. And so that was a, gr a good opportunity um, to hear from Dr. Johnston again and, and some of her, uh, some of her uh, tips and suggestions for, for all of us. So with that, Dr. Johnston, thank you for uh, returning to, to the Bright Focus Chats. Thank you, Michael, for in inviting me. I'm happy to, to talk and try to help people um, uh, through their their concerns about about their um, emotional aspects of their uh, eye problems, their visual problems. What do you think are some of the you know, sort of big picture question to start off? Um, as a geriatric psychiatrist, what do you see as some of the the big challenges uh, th this time of year for people who who are impacted by vision disease? So I think this time of year, uh, a lot of people have a hard time with the holidays anyway. And, uh, you know, having a, a, a new or a chronic problem that, that makes it difficult to keep up with things or to, or to get around can make it extra challenging. Um, it, now, in my experience with my patients, uh, I, I've, I've, I've observed that many of them uh, become very adept and skilled at managing these problems, but it takes time. Um, and the, there's a learning process and a learning curve. Um, the, the, the winter weather itself, the cold and the ice and all the rest of it, is challenging and it's a struggle for people. And it can, it can take an emotional toll as well as a physical toll. And, of course, the reduced light in the wintertime can be a problem as well. Not, not just because it's harder to see things, but because it actually can contribute to seasonal affective disorder. And the interesting thing, the interesting thing is that people uh, with impaired vision um, are more likely to experience seasonal affective disorder than either fully sighted people or, or people who are uh, completely blind, um, which was an interesting thing. Um, it's thought it's because partially sighted people are more reliant on, on the available light. Hmm. Um, so that, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's that's really interesting um, to to know that. What would you, you know, sort of uh, big picture on that topic? What are um, uh, ways in which um, the, this this type of weather can affect someone's depression or anxiety symptoms? Well, sometimes people uh, become more isolated because they're afraid of going out. 
um, they become less active because they're afraid of falling. And of course, there's ice out there, so that's you know, it's understandable that people would be cautious. Um, in in people's homes, uh, if you have only recently developed a visual impairment and have lived in the same home for a long time, the reduced light might become a problem when it's combined with the various things that are around the house um, that weren't a problem before but now are because you can't see them very clearly and there's less light to see them by. Um, so if a person has a fall, um, one of the things that, that can happen is they become, they, they lose some confidence about moving around and they start to avoid walking and moving around. And the thing that happens when people become physically inactive in addition to losing physical uh, stability and strength, it actually increases their risk of depression. Um, so it, the biggest uh, the thing I want uh, to emphasize the most here is that the, the research supports physical activity and social engagement as the two biggest factors protecting people from developing depression. And that's particularly relevant to people who have a condition like macular degeneration that might, you know, make it a little bit more difficult for them or a lot more difficult for them to do their normal activities. Um, it is well worth addressing these two areas. There was a study that um, had people on an exercise bike, actually, daily, and that actually reduced the incidence of uh, depression by half in the people who were, who were engaged in the study. And that was just getting on an exercise bike daily. It didn't involve them going outside, um, so there are ways that you can be active without having to risk falling on ice or without having to walk around areas that mightn't be safe for you to walk about. Um, if you have an exercise bike, that can actually help your mental health. Hmm. That's great. Well, so many, so many great points there, uh, Dr. Johnson. I just want to um, uh, you know, start with a few. How, you know, in your experience as a geriatric psychiatrist, where's the line that separates very, um, what I think are kind of reasonable uh, you know, challenges or, or emotions, um, you know, with, with having low vision uh, th this time of year, where does that cross a line or is there a line you know, into depression or anxiety? Well, there's, kind, there's sort of a, a, a continuum. So at one end, there are people who are dealing with something that's upsetting or a real life situation, a new challenge they're having to deal with. Um, and uh, some degree of anxiety or sadness or, or grief is, is a normal part of that. And that's something that, that once they adjust to the new situation and have come to terms with it, um, usually they, they get back on track and they learn ways of coping with it. And, and it's, not, it, it's not impairing their ability to function socially or uh, physically or in their, you know, their sleep, there doesn't, you know, if it's not affecting their sleep or their appetite or their energy or their concentration or their ability to talk and interact with people. That's not a clinical depression. That's more of a normal sadness or grief. And uh, it can also, it can also be what we call a minor depression, which isn't severe enough to warrant um, some of the, particularly the medication treatments, uh, but it can respond to other treatments and other strategies. Now, major depression is a is a common and, and serious uh, condition, 
that is actually very treatable. But what the, what differentiates major depression from from uh, sadness or a, rea- or a reaction to a, a new diff- difficult situation? What difference differentiates the depression, the 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 condition called major depression and normal sadness or grief is it interferes with function. It stops people from being able to function in their daily lives. And when that happens, um, there's a need then for them to be treated. Uh, if people will, it, it will lose interest in things, their concentration will be poor, they may have... Um, interfere their sleep may be interfered with their appetite may change and that's um that's a condition that can be that is very treatable but it has to be recognized and diagnosed first and obviously other causes of these changes have to be ruled out as well because other things can cause those changes as well and with 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 seasonal affective disorder the um all of this the depression people experience in seasonal affective disorder can be the very same um, they can also have episodes of bipolar disorder in a seasonal pattern. Um, and again, the same distinction applies between mood changes that are uh, that occur with the seasons, uh, but are not severe enough to interfere with function, and mood changes that occur with the seasons that are severe enough to interfere with function. And those are the ones that require strategies to treat and 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 get and recover from. I appreciate that. There's a couple questions for you about, about um, uh, seasonal affective disorder or sa- uh, SAD, S-A-D, as a lot of our listeners may have, you know, may have seen it. Um, it would seem like it, it, kind of a double whammy if somebody was new, you know, had a recent AMD diagnosis um, and is also having the, the seasonal affective disorder. I mean, what um, what Sort of works best for people that that are that are going through that seasonal affective disorder. Is it um, either diet, the diet or supplements, or you know what are what are some of the the, the some of the best practices uh, in that area? Maintain mental health and wellness. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I think first of all you have to address your physical health and make sure that you know you are. Um, taking care of yourself, having a proper diet, you know, nutrition is very important. And, you know, the only reason you would need supplements would be uh, because you were deficient in something. And that deficiency most often occurs through diet, uh, through nutritional habits. Uh, So the first thing to do is make sure that you're eating a a good diet, a healthy diet that has the proper uh, elements to keep you healthy. Uh, Because physical and mental health are, they're not separate. Um, and uh, I see patients who have um, conditions that could have been prevented um, if they had actually been been helped with making healthier selections, food selections, and 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 lifestyle um, routines uh, earlier. Now, having said that, I'm not a big fan of supplements, and I think most most uh, most of us, most physicians, will say uh, that unless you have a specific um, deficiency that you're better off not taking pills and and the reason I say that is that the more pills you have to juggle uh, the more likely you are to make a, a medication error and you know whether they're over-the-counter pills or whether they're uh, prescribed medications um, if you have a half a dozen different pills to take at different times of day or more I mean some people are on a lot of pills the chances particularly if you have cognitive impairment or visual impairment the chances of making an error increase 
with every pill that's added to that mixture. So adding a, a supplement in isn't something that I would do lightly. Now, having said that, you know, uh, people who get depressed um, sometimes find, uh, sometimes B12 can help with uh, mood. And so even though I'm not encouraging people to go running out buying B12, uh, it can help with mood sometimes in some people. Um, yeah, but the biggest thing that you... Sorry, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, just on the on the seasonal affective disorder, are we, is it true that there are maybe some lighting changes around the house, maybe special types of lamps that 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 might help uh, with that? Yes. So one of the treatments for seasonal affective disorder is is bright light therapy, and bright light therapy has been shown to help people who have seasonal affective disorder. Um, it it does help some people. It is used early in the morning, and uh, there are there are guidelines as to how to use it. Now, I, I would urge anybody who has macular degeneration to talk to their ophthalmologist before they start using bright light therapy. Um, there is some evidence that bright light can 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 inter can harm your retina, and so if you're going to do anything like that, talk to the ophthalmologist first. Um, daylight, however, being out in daylight can actually help your mental health and reduce your risk of depression. So um, trying to get some exposure to daylight every day, even if it's cloudy, is actually protective against depression. That's good to know. And kind of, you know, keep on that depression theme for, for another question. Um, the, with the patients you see, I, I would, you know, how do you uh, address when people say that they, they live with this constant um, uh, possibility of, of going blind like how how do what sort of uh uh you know ways do you do you address that concern so i try to find out where they're at in the process of on of understanding their condition what do they what do they understand about it what have they been told what questions do they have that they need answered so I try to help them think it through from that perspective first of all because most people it helps most people to understand, to have information and understand what's going on because that can reduce the fear if they understand what's happening. And then there's the grief part of it um, and the, the dealing with the loss of vision. And that is a, that's a process. Uh, and that, you know, people sometimes want to talk about how frustrated they are and how difficult their life has become. Uh, but they also want to talk about what they're finding is helping them and what their successes are. And one of the things I notice with my patients, who are my patients, are, most of them are very elderly. Um, they're not, you know, they're tough. Uh, I, I, I like to say you don't get to 90 by being a pushover. You don't get to 80 by being a pushover. So people who have reached that stage of their lives have usually had a lot of, you know, major challenges thrown at them in the course of their lives. So they have, I, I noticed that even when they're struggling, there's a lot of innate resilience in this age group, uh, which is a huge strength when it comes to dealing with this new thing that they're having to deal with, because they already have a lot of resources, uh, their own internal resources to draw on. 
And many of them also have other resources, family, friends, community. So a lot of what we talk about is problem solving around the issue, trying to figure out, trying to look at what the situation is, what, look at what are the things that are frustrating. Look at, try to see if there's a different way we can look at those things, you know, frame them differently and see if we can think about them differently. And then try to problem, break them down into their elements and try to problem solve around the components of that problem. Um, and sometimes people, they have the, you know, they can, they're very good at figuring out how to prob- problem solve themselves, but sometimes they're so overwhelmed by the distress of it all that it takes them a while to be able to do that. And that's a lot of what we work on. Sure. No, that's good. Very, those are, uh, you know, great points about resilience and problem solving. And I, I think part of that is, is asking for, for help, whether that's, you know, with, with your eye care professional or family or um or, for, or friends, I just wanted to, you know, kind of ta- stay on that topic for a few questions. Um, what do you think, um, you know, uh, asking for help uh, can be hard. You know, a lot of us come from uh, long generations of sto- people who, who, who are stoic or think they can, they can solve everything themselves. But how, how do you encourage people to, to, to maybe break out of that, that, um, that perspective and, and ask for help? So that's a very good point, and it's actually a very important point because there are two aspects to that. One is um, not isolating oneself and not hiding away because you have this problem. Um, that it's in itself, hiding away and becoming isolated, is a- actually undermines your mental health. It has been shown that, that social engagement actually protects you against depression. So that's one very good reason to reach out to others. Um, the other is that, that it's okay to ask for help. And, you know, reduce, it reduces stigma if you're upfront about, because that's sometimes what people are worried about is stigma. If you're upfront about what your situation is and are, you know, are open with people about it, people often want to do things to help you. They'll offer to do things to help you. Don't turn any of that down. Um, there may be people, you know, one of the issues that comes up is getting from here to there, driving. Um, there may be people that you normally, under normal circumstances, would see on a regular basis and socialize with or be, go to activities with. Those are your friends and those are people and your community. And there are people among them who may be very happy to take you where you need to go, you know, if it's somewhere that the two of you have been going all along. But they may not offer um you know, they may offer, but they may not offer um, until you ask for help. Um, I, I see that a lot with my um, my patients and their families, where one family member is, is trying to uh, is trying to cope with a difficult situation, uh, maybe taking care of an elderly relative who's who's sick, and they'll, they're doing an amazing job usually, and and very often they they want help from the family. Um, and I ask them, have you asked for help? And they'll say, well, they can see I need help. The thing is that what people see is that they're actually doing fine and they don't want to offend them by interfering or offering help. So you really have to. And the other thing is nobody can read anybody else's mind. So it, you really do have to say what help you need. And, yeah. and, and many people are very glad once you've made it okay for them to give you that help to step up and, and, and help you. Plus, you're maintaining your social engagement when you do that, which is also very important. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's great, a great point, that people are very willing to help. And, you know, Dr. Johnson, one um, thing I think is unique about um, vision diseases is, 
it, it might not be a, if someone's out in public, which it gets out and all the all the benefits that you talked about. Um, if they, you know they're out in their town square or shopping area, they might not seem that they need the help. I mean, I, you know, I, I've always found that there's a lot of good people out there. And if somebody sees you on crutches or using a walker or juggling a door while holding a baby in one hand or whatever, that, that there's a lot of people that, that, that step up to, to do that. But I think with vision diseases, it, it's just not that, that apparent. So I think that's a great point that you, that you mentioned about um, uh, asking for help. And in terms of the, 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 the interactions with, within the family um, and, and caregivers, I know you're a geriatric psychiatrist, but when your patients are dealing with their eye care professionals, do you have tips for what might help them uh, communicate uh, most clearly and make the most out of that that eye doctor visit? Yes, um, I think it helps to be prepared because sometimes for when you go to any doctor, sometimes you get there and the problem that was on your mind yesterday has been re- replaced by some other issue today. So it's a good idea to keep um, keep. A, a list of questions. Keep a personal health record, and um, that is actually something we're recommending now for for people because it gives you more control over over your health and over your your situation. And if you can keep a personal health record and keep on it the questions that you have as well as um, answers to those questions, uh, that can be very useful. And when you're preparing to go see your doctor. Just make make a list or have someone help you make a list of of the questions that are that you want you want addressed. And bring Great. them up then. Be ready to bring them up with your doctor and show them the list or talk to or you know, if you're able to if you are able to read them, um go ahead and read them. But share those questions. Make sure you have the questions written down and share them with the doctor when you get there. And then um you know, make sure that you get the answers uh, written down so that you can go through them afterwards or have somebody help you go through the answers afterwards. Um, these days we have a thing called an after-visit summary. All of us use these now, I think, in most places. And the patient goes out the door with their, their list of, with their printout. Now, one of the things that I've noticed about these printouts is that um, sometimes the medication lists aren't updated. And I, I would suggest to you that you double-check with your doctor that the information that you're going to take home with you is up-to-date or with your clinic nurse or whoever is the person you're interacting with, um, the clinical person you're interacting with. Ask, is this information accurate and up-to-date? And make sure that, that you take away correct information with you. Um, because with all of the electronic stuff that's, that we're using these days, it's, it can be easy for for. Um, things to be left on there that shouldn't be, or the, to be taken off that should that, that shouldn't be. Um, so that would be that would be a recommendation. Is there um, uh, does that is that does that answer your yeah. question, Michael? Yeah, very, very, yeah, very very well. Thanks. And Dr. Johnson, on that, that you know, earlier you mentioned a lot of the medications that people take, and you just you just had some great ideas for uh, a visit to to an eye doctor. Um, am I correct that some some medicines that uh, that uh, people are prescribed might actually increase their risk of, of falling around the house, which just would seem to me to, to only exacerbate some of the some of the anxiety issues. So, um, are there medicines that, that do increase those risks? Yes, there are. And and first of all, I'll just mention that there are medications that are appropriate to treat depression depression and anxiety, and they're usually the same group of medications called 
uh, specific serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, or serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, which are also called SNRIs. And these are medications. Uh, the SSRIs are things like, you, you'll know them as uh, Lexapro and Citalopram and Sertraline, Zoloft. Um, those are the brand names. Uh, I won't spend a lot of time going down through all of the other medications. Uh, Effexor is one, Venlafaxine is the other name for it. Um, so those are the appropriate types of medications to treat depression and anxiety. What sometimes happens um, is that, that people will go to their doctor and they're very anxious, very upset, very agitated, and, and they're saying, oh, please give me something. And, you know, in, in many um, situations, um, they will be prescribed a medication from a group of medications called benzodiazepines. And this includes uh, Ativan, Xanax, Alprazolam, Lorazepam, and other medications from that group. Now, those medications, the current thinking among um, geriatricians and geriatric psychiatrists and psychiatrists is that, the, well, the evidence is that these medications can actually interfere with your short-term memory, uh, and they can also increase your risk of falling. So they're really only properly used in very specific circumstances, such as um, pre-medication for a procedure or um, for uh, induction of anesthesia. Or you know, there's a number of of those types of ad with treat treatment of alcohol withdrawal, or as a brief short-term adjunct to uh, an antidepressant treatment for depression. So um, if if your doctor it, is, you know, if you're talking to your doctor about medications to help, those are medications, if you're not already on them, really you should avoid taking them. The pr appropriate treatment for the for depression and anxiety that is in need of medication would be the SSRIs or SNRIs. If you're already, however, on a benzodiazepine, don't stop it abruptly because you can go into withdrawal from it. And that's one of the other issues that that, that can happen. It's a they're, de they're dependency producing medications. So yeah. um, that means that if you stop taking it, you'll go into withdrawal. So. Um, Question things. Don't be afraid to question things. If if your doctor is suggesting a medication, ask about the medication and the alternatives and the pros and cons and the side effects. Um, and try, uh, you know, try obviously all of the other measures we've suggested um, to stay healthy, but um, try to avoid taking benzodiazepines if you can. Sometimes people get prescribed them for anxiety or depression, uh, and that ends up um, not being treated, but they end up dependent on the benzodiazepine. And now they have two problems. They have a benzodiazepine dependence and an untreated depression. So it helps to understand, to know about this and know what to ask. Great. Now, I appreciate the, the, the detail. Dr. Johnson, I know that um, you have some background in um, uh, addressing visual hallucinations. Um, oh, yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And is that something that, that this, this winter season um, uh, impacts? Yes. So reduced light can actually increase the frequency of visual hallucinations, which, as I think your listeners know, are are common in macular degeneration. Um, and most of the time, the the um, visual hallucinations are non-threatening, and people learn how to manage them. And you know, but however, um, it's it's really important to remember to keep your your area around you brightly lit and to ha know the strategies to minimize 
the hallucinations. The other important thing to know is if the hallucinations suddenly become worse or suddenly become menacing, it could indicate a, a new medical problem um, such as a urinary tract infection or dehydration and the onset of delirium. So these, medica- these, these hallucinations um, usually don't need to be treated with medication, but under certain circumstances, they may need to be treated with medication. Um, again, we try to avoid medications as much as possible, uh, but there are circumstances, uh, for instance, if, they're, if these become part of a delirium that's caused by a medical problem, we treat the medical problem, and sometimes the hallucinations need to be treated as a, an, an entity in their own right. Um, for, and I recently had a patient who, who uh, had, had hallucinations, visual hallucinations for years due to her macular degeneration, and um, she started to see um, much more scary things around her and became very distressed. And she was taken to the emergency room, and sure enough, she had a, a urinary tract infection and was dehydrated. And when that was treated, she got better, and the hallucinations went back to their baseline. So, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. Okay. that's real. And kind of related to that, what about people who um, uh, have have more difficulty sleeping, you know, consistently or on a regular basis during uh, d- during the, the the challenging winter months? Is this some give uh, some advice for uh, for them? Yes. So what some people do, and this isn't a good habit, is they'll take a nap in the afternoon when they're when they're uh, when they haven't slept well at night. So that's not a good idea because that can reset your clock. And if you're already having, you know, absorbing less light or seeing less light, it may be quite difficult to actually keep your clock the way it's supposed to be with you sleeping at night and being awake during the day. So there are the American Alliance for uh, Healthy Sleep actually has a, a, a tip sheet about this, and I, I think Michael will be able to share that with you, but I'll just run down through some of the most important um, tips. So you, you, you should keep a consistent sleep schedule. Get up at the same time every day, even on the weekends and vacations, even if you've had a bad night's sleep. Get up and try to stick to your usual routine. And then go to bed at a time that's early enough for you to get at least seven hours of sleep. Uh, don't go to bed unless you're sleepy. And um, if you don't fall asleep after 20 minutes, get out of bed for a little while and, and, and try again then later. And, and do something relaxing before you go to bed. Don't do something that makes you stressed or, or anxious, you know, paying bills or any of that, that kind of thing before you go to bed. And then use your bed only for sleep and sex. Uh, make your bedroom as relaxing as you can and quiet and keep the, the room at a comfortable, cool temperature. Then limit your exposure to bright light in the evenings. The bright light should be in the mornings. Um, turn off your electronic devices at least 30 minutes before bedtime. No tablet, no no TV, no, no smartphone. And, and don't eat a huge amount before bedtime. Um, have a light, healthy snack, but at the same time, don't go to bed hungry. So a light, healthy snack is better than a heavy meal. And then exercise regularly. I know I keep coming back to this, but this makes a very big difference to a lot of um, areas of your daily life, as well as your mental health. Exercise regularly. Have some activity every day. Even if you can't get out of the house, walk around the house. Uh, If you have an exercise bike, get on the bike. Eat a healthy diet. And then stay away from caffeine in, in the afternoon or evening. And avoid alcohol before bedtime. So don't have a nightcap. Um, even if it's been a habit, don't have a nightcap. Um, avoid smoking, especially before bedtime. And then 
make sure you're drinking enough fluids early in the day to maintain, to remain hydrated so that you can reduce the amount you drink before bedtime. And that's very important because some people get up to go to the bathroom and then they think, oh, no, I can't go to sleep now, and they're lying, tossing and turning. So um, set yourself up for success going to bed. Uh, you know, do some of these, try to remember some of these tips and um, don't have to be getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom unless, you know, obviously, you know, as, as we get older, there are a lot of other reasons why we have to get up to go to the bathroom. Um, but if you have things set up so that, you're you're more likely to sleep, then you're also more likely to fall back asleep if you do have to get up and go to bed or go to the bathroom and, and, and return to bed afterwards. Well, that's great. Those are those are very helpful tips and yes, we'll be glad to to, to share those out with the with the transcript of, of today's chat. I just kind of a couple a uh, couple more areas to touch on before we, we conclude for today. Um you know, I, I think that uh, when you look at the the weather, uh, really year round, um, but certainly in the winter, um, this country, I, it, I think it's understandable for people to get anxious about emergencies or power outages or, or evacuations. Um, any tips, whether that is um, uh, mental or logistical, to help people feel a little more confident um, as you know, a possible emergency might uh, might draw near. Yes, um, that's a very good point. Um, sometimes it can make a person more anxious. Uh, there's a storm approaching and they might have a power out and they're, it's, it's kind of a scary feeling. So the best way to avoid that is to have a plan, to have thought ahead and have a plan. Um, the, there are a number of good resources out there. First of all, putting together an emergency kit is a good, is a very good idea. And, um, I think the American Foundation for the Blind has some very good resources on on putting together an emergency kit for your home. And the other thing that you can do is have um, have a plan with your family members or other trusted friends or or, or family um, or neighbors for what to do in the case of an emergency. And you know, over the last few years, there have been so many. Um, uh, environmental issues and weather weather disasters that um, it makes perfect sense to have a plan and having a plan can actually reduce your anxiety level because you you know you hear the, you hear a storm's coming well you know where your emergency kit is you know where you you know how you have a plan to reach people if you need to they know where what your situation is and um, you can have a plan with them that they'll check in with you. Um, if there is a weather emergency or any other kind of um, disaster or, or hazard. Um, and so having that plan in place is a very good idea. And, you know, a lot of us don't think about it until the problem is happening. But really, it's a good idea to think ahead because those, those are the kinds of things that can reduce your overall anxiety level, your background anxiety level. Yeah, no, those are great points because you're exactly right. It uh, It can be it can be pretty uh, pretty difficult. So, uh, Dr. Johnson, you know, as, as we uh, reach the end of our of uh, today's discussion, you know, first first, uh, you know, want to thank you for for being so generous with your time, and you've certainly given given all of us a lot of uh, a lot of specifics to to um, make the best out of these uh, challenging winter months. So, I'd like to kind of conclude with sort of a big picture question, and that's. Um, do you have any concluding remarks or sort of uh, larger picture advice from what you've seen during your time as a, geri as a geriatric psychiatrist that you think would be useful um, to share with families who are impacted by vision disease? Um, so I think one of the things is, going back to that, what I mentioned about resilience, um, 
people do have a lot of their own resilience that they sometimes have to find uh, when they're feeling threatened by something like this. Um, like I said, you don't get to your 80s and 90s, even your 70s, by being a pushover. So you have resilience that you may need to remind yourself is there. But the other thing is that the practical everyday things you can do that can actually help you uh, based on the research uh, that has been done are very simple things, really. Um, staying in touch with your, your family and friends Making new connections uh, with your the partially sighted community is also very important. Peer support is very important. And being ready to ask for help um, and making sure that avoidable, preventable problems are prevented uh, by taking care of your environment and doing things to prevent um, being in a situation where depression or anxiety are more likely or social isolation. Avoid social isolation. It's one of the, I think that's a, a key tip and stay active. Great. No, those are all, those are all great points uh, year round and, and particularly during, during the winter months. And so Dr. Johnson, just on behalf of, of our listeners and Bright Focus Foundation, I'd like to thank you so much for, uh, for being so helpful today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Great. Well, this concludes today's Bright Focus chat. You can uh, always call us at 1-800-437-2423. That's, again, Bright Focus's 1-800 number, which is 800-437-2423. A lot of the materials we talked about today uh, and other helpful resources are available at our website, brightfocus.org. So on behalf of Dr. Johnston and the Bright Focus Foundation, thank you so much for, for joining us today. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.